0: I want the kind of mindful eating where you think about, what is the origin of this food? Who was making it? Why do we have access to it? If we're having something exquisite, like a you know, hand-padded tortilla, who's the one who's made that, as opposed to the industrial model?
1: Welcome to The Stephen Satterfield Show, part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Hello, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the Steven Satterfield show. Today, I'm in conversation with someone I've long admired. It's Dara Goldstein, the prolific scholar, author and publisher, notably of Russian and Eastern European literature and food culture. She's published 17 books, including six cookbooks, along with being the founding editor of Gastronomica the Journal of Food and Culture, a publication that I must say has been instrumental and influential in the origins and founding of Whetstone magazine. It was, to my knowledge, the first magazine to bridge the gap between academia and popular food culture and writing. And it really gave me hope and a bit of a roadmap as I was thinking about how I wanted Whetstone to contribute editorially. We also talk about her time living in Russia during the cold war, how Russian literature shaped her love of food. And we discuss our mutual love of Georgia, Georgian wine and cuisine. All of that is up now on the Steven Satterfield show. One of the main things that we have in common is that launching a magazine was pretty formative in both of our careers. I think you launched yours in 2001. That's right. And then we launched ours in 2017. 16 years apart, publishing and print publishing is also such a specific way in. Can you talk about that decision or really the the thing that compelled you to want to start with print publishing?
0: Yeah, so um, I pretty much had and maybe still have two lives. One is an academic and one is someone just passionately engaged with food, but not necessarily in an academic sense. And I, after I started teaching at Williams as a professor, actually even before that, when I went to graduate school and I want to write my PhD on food in Russian literature, and was told that I was not a serious person. And I think my whole career since then has been an effort to prove those professors wrong. <laughs> the food is serious, it's delightful, it's delicious, but it's also, you know, the core of everything. So I was teaching Russian literature, Russian poetry, Russian language, Russian art, but I was still doing a lot of food writing and publishing cookbooks. And I wanted to find a way to bring my lives together really, but also to, I think, make food writers realize that they could engage more deeply with their subjects instead of just going on the surface with recipes but also to bring more academic voices into the conversation and get people talking to each other. So I thought there has to be a journal to give people an outlet where they can publish really quirky, esoteric things, but also just, you know, find a lot a larger audience.
1: Sounds so familiar, too. I think ultimately, in many ways, I was feeling the same. And so you came out with Gastronomica as a place to hold that space for quirky readers and contributors. What were the first few years like? How did it all unfold?
0: Well, I decided to find an academic publisher because I was trying to get food studies credibility in academia, you know, again, this push and pull inside me. And I thought if it's published by, you know, some trade publisher, then it won't be taken as seriously. But University of California Press was an amazing partner. I mean, they really got it. And the production values of the journal were so high. And it was absolutely thrilling to me. I don't think I slept those first years. I didn't really have a staff. I mean, it was basically me and wonderful designer, Francis Baka, And we were a great team and there was a managing editor part-time, but it was, um, it was way too much to take on. I didn't know what I was doing, which I think made it a better journal because there were no preconceived ideas. It's like, try anything.
1: Yeah, it all rings so familiar i'm so glad that i asked you about that when you were having this epiphany around the things of interest to you you were bringing your own identity into this this work as well your interest in russia comes from your own background as a russian jewish woman so what about your food history or rather your own history, led you to food as um, a particular path of discovery and exploration?
0: I, I don't think it all came together till I was in college and started studying Russian, because I didn't know any until I took a class. But I mean, everyone, I think, talks about baking or cooking at their grandmother's knee. Many people have that experience, but I do think it's profound. And she made a lot of, particularly her rugelach, you know, which are these rolled pastries that are filled with, in her case, raspberry jam and cinnamon. I'm starting to salivate. Yeah. And sometimes walnuts and um, a lot of, you know, brisket-like dishes. And I just loved all of that. I really gravitated to the kitchen, but I didn't really put it together with any kind of particularly Jewish or Russian identity until I started reading Russian literature. I think it's partly because there was so much censorship in in Russia then as there, sadly still is now, but anything erotic was sublimated through food. So their descriptions are hugely erotic. They're delightful, they're hilarious. A lot of the characters in the stories and novels are actually characterized by what they eat. So that's really what made me somehow connect with that and realize that there were all these dishes I was eating that I didn't know had a history beyond what was my own family history.
1: And that took you to many different other parts of the world as far as explorations. One of the places you went to was the Republic of Georgia, a place that I first visited and read your your book Obviously, the history between Russia and Georgia is immense.
0: And I'm not I'm not so happy. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I was very dutiful graduate student, and the poet I wrote my dissertation on, Nikolai Zabolotsky, had, besides writing his own poetry, the way he was surviving was doing translations, line-by-line translations from the Georgian. Georgia has an extraordinary poetic tradition. He didn't know the language, but he had literal translations that then he turned into beautiful poetic renditions in Russian. And um, he was actually put into the gulag for his poems and kind of survived. I mean, he got out after eight years, but he was completely broken, wasn't allowed to live in Moscow and went to Georgia because that's where he had had this deep connection with Georgian poets. I thought, well, I have to go to Georgia because I have to see um, what inspired him to write poetry again. Some of that this was in 1978, I think I first went, and some of the people who'd known him are still alive. So I went to do dissertation research and I <laughs> discovered the food and I had to write a Georgian cookbook. Because it was so extraordinary. And then I discovered the Georgian winemaking tradition of 8,000 years and the cheese making tradition and on and on and on.
1: On and on and on. Well, I can't really imagine what it would have been like to have been there in 1978. You were born a U.S. citizen, I'm presuming. Yeah. You studied in Russia, lived in Finland, and now traveling in Georgia during kind of the height of the Cold War.
0: Well, Georgia itself was like going to Shangri La or everything I imagined Shangri La would be if it exists. You know, um, going from Moscow in the Soviet years in the winter. In 1978, when there was very little food, there was terrible, oppressive feeling. Everything seemed dark and uh, fraught with anxiety. And then you go to Georgia, and it's sunny, even in the wintertime. It might be cold in Tbilisi because it's in the mountains, but there's a brightness, and people are feasting. Abundant food. uh, Citrus fruits, which I hadn't seen for months pomegranates, um, wine, gorgeous wine that wasn't the schlocky wine, really sweet wine that Stalin had enjoyed and that flooded the Russian market. So on every level, it was all about, well, really, the Georgian word supra, which means feast. It means tablecloth, but by extension, it means feast. It's getting together and people affirm their identity, their kinship, their long history as Georgians, even though there've been all these foreign incursions over the centuries. And it opened up so much for me, uh, friendships that I still have from those years, just quite wonderful.
1: That's amazing. And yeah, I'd love and miss a good Supra. I am curious, putting on your academic Pat, you kind of alluded to it earlier that food studies and the lack of respect for food studies in the academy was one of the things that led you to starting Gastronomica. You know, one of the things coming 16 years behind you that we experienced was actually a real rapid rise of food studies Um, programs and accreditations across universities and respect of food studies as a category has kind of been an unprecedented place. So is that true? You're a good person to ask. And if it is true, then can you give us like the state of things for, for food studies?
0: Well, actually, just within the past year, I feel as though on a certain level, food studies has arrived. And I say that because Oxford University Press has a series of Oxford research encyclopedias that cover 25 different disciplines. know, the serious ones like neurosciences and astronomy and physics. And they decided to launch a research encyclopedia in food studies asked me be editor-in-chief, it's like, wow, it really has arrived if it's going to be there with, you know, public health and all of these other disciplines that historically have been taken very seriously. So I feel like, yes, food studies is here, but now I have to, you know, sort of add a coda to that. Because what I've seen in the years that Many of us have worked very hard to get it established. I feel like now, on a certain level, it's been overtaken by the social sciences, which uh, the social science,
1: the anthropologists,
0: um, the anthropologists to some degree, but even more the um, the sociologists. Yeah. And I think what's happening now that I find um, worrisome. Well, it's the state of the United States in general there isn't a focus on humanities any longer. It's like humanities are dismissed as not being of import. So now it's not food stays it's not important it's humanities <laughs> writ large but I think the focus now and to some degree it's extremely important is on food system Like how does food get from you know the ground through, the incredible labor that's involved to the market, to the kitchen, you know, the technologies, the transportation, the labor, all of that is so important. And people are looking at food systems in a way that hadn't been studied so extensively before. And it's extremely important. And water systems and everything having to do with climate change and agriculture, regenerative agriculture and carbon sequestering. I believe in all of that. But I feel like the person at the stove has sort of been lost in all that. Like, who is doing the cooking? What are the personal histories of those people? What is the lineage of the food that they're making? So that kind of what we used to call culinary history, which now feels like a outdated or sort of old-fashioned term because it's maybe not broad enough to encompass these larger ideas but I somehow now feel this need to bring food stays back into the kitchen and not have it simply out there beyond the hearth because the hearth metaphorically is where it all resides to me. That's where my love for things having to do with food really starts.
1: I hear that. I I wonder how you would respond to the fact that the world that many of us live in has also pushed us away from the hearth and that the people that feed us and the food that we eat increasingly is not being prepared by other humans that we Love Or maybe even know if humans at all, so how do you reconcile I guess the the desire to keep food history and the hearth at the center when it's barely at the center of of so many of our lives because of you know all the reasons industrialization
0: i I can't say that I can reconcile it, and I'm not reconciled to it, but I feel like what whetstone is doing. What other people are trying to do is to keep reminding the world or whoever our readers or listeners are, or whoever's willing to open their minds, that there's something more to this, that a richness a meaning is lost if we don't really understand the food on our plate or that we're putting into our mouths. I mean, to me, it's like, if you have a plate of food, it, it's a map. And you can look at a map, and if you can imagine a bigger map that shows more, you just look at the foods and you travel. If you're lucky, you're traveling the world through different flavors and through the transport of these goods, which hasn't just happened recently with you know our intense globalization now. It's been going on for a long time. I want the kind of mindful eating where you think about what is the origin of this food? Who was making it? Why do we have access to it? If we're having something exquisite, like a you know, hand-padded tortilla, who's the one who's made that as opposed to the industrial model?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that part will always create urgency and a timelessness for for our work. That's why we are focused on origins. And, you know, I asked you that question, I don't exactly have it reconciled myself as someone who is also advocating for a closer, more historical view and relationship to food. But, you know, I have to say one of the, the parts about food that has made me more i guess vigilant about its utility as a, a serious medium of study is because of its intersectionality because of all of the things that i've learned often not even on purpose and you know we can't assume that everyone is capable or curious enough to forge those same pathways your books it's this current series on preservation or preserving. It's a six part series and the first two books have just been released with Courtney Burns and uh, Richard Martin.
0: Yeah, I sort of can't believe we agreed to write six books uh, in a series because as these first two are launching, the next two are due at the same time because you need a year for production. So it is kind of intense at the moment. But uh, Richard and I had uh, worked together on the very short-lived journal, Cured. I don't know if you ever saw it, there was a single issue that came out in 2015 from 0.0 Productions. And it was maybe ahead of its time in terms of its focus on fermentation. And um, we thought about relaunching it, but couldn't find funding. And then we brought Courtney in, hoping that that would help (laughs) um, open up people's pockets, but that didn't work either. But then Hardy Grant Publishers and Jenny Wapner in particular said, well, why don't we can't publish a magazine, but why don't you turn it into a series of small books, which is how the series came to be. But it's a very, very deep dive into all methods of preserving foods. And it's been quite wonderful. Courtney is an extremely avid fermenter. Oh, yes. And her recipes are are quite brilliant. And some of them are quite out there. So it's been a lot of new exploration for me, which I've really learned a lot from. And it's been kind of exciting. And also there's something wondrous about having the pantry shelf just filled with all kinds of different bubbling, oozing, (laughs) uh, sometimes exploding things in jars. Um, It feels like potential. And I love this feeling also when the world feels like it's sort of closing in the way it is right now. You go in and there's life and it's bubbling and it will be delicious or maybe less so, but in any case, it will be interesting. That's what I'm deeply involved in. The first volumes that just came out are condiments and fruits. And then we just are turning in vegetables and drinks.
1: That's that's really cool. And as far as modes of preservation, have you learned anything in the process that came as a surprise. I mean, you've given so much thought and scholarship to so many parts, especially studying Eastern European food culture. I mean, fermentation and preservation is at the center. How do you keep it fresh and um, what did you learn?
0: I think my interest in fermentation, again, was always cultural. So going to Russia, talking about those old Soviet days and People didn't have, because Pepsi hadn't arrived yet, Coke hadn't arrived yet, people were drinking kombucha because it was fizzy, you know, sort of, and sweet, sort of like their homemade soda. And there was always kombucha there. It was normalized. And the pickles there aren't made with vinegar. They're made, you know, with lacto-fermentation, just a salt brine, because that's the healthy way to do it. And the mushrooms are pickled in the same way. And so it was just part of the culture. And I never really thought much about um, the science behind it. And so in the process of working on these recipes, I had to think about the science, percentages of brine, why things happen the way they do, what the processes are. And I can't say that that's where I want to stay in that world of numbers. But I have learned about how ingredients interact, and I have a greater respect, really, for the human wisdom that figured all of this out. If we're talking about origins, so much of it was probably accidental in some way, like something happened with heat and uh, ingredients, and then... Something new came out of it, but the way humans have learned to harness these processes and uh, make things even more delectable, I think is just extraordinary.
1: I have to agree with you there. Congratulations, by the way, on the editor's role with with Oxford. It's
0: been a joy to talk to you, Stephen. I hope to continue the conversation sometime.
1: Same, yeah, next time in real life over some Georgian wine. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to The Stephen Satterfield Show. You can follow us and learn more about the show at Whetstone Media on Instagram, YouTube, and online. WhetstoneMedia.com. That's W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E media.com. We'll be back next week. Peace.